Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Prananda, Kloisul de Gethli, good afternoon and welcome to Hay. And we're delighted to welcome you to this, the next lecture in conjunction with Cambridge University. Catalina Coops is the, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Zurich and a visiting researcher at Harvard University. Her research areas include tool use and culture in wild chimpanzees and bonobos. Her work has featured widely on the BBC and CBC radio programmes and also in many media publications. She serves as a member of the Great Apes section of the Primate Specialist Group in the IUCN Species Survival Commission. It's a long title, that. Please, would you put your hands together and give a warm hey welcome, welcome to Catalina Coops. Good afternoon, everybody, and a warm welcome to my talk. As said, I'm currently affiliated with the University of Zurich and Harvard University. But I had the good fortune to spend nine years at the University of Cambridge, first as a PhD student and then as a, a postdoctoral research fellow. So I'm very happy to be here today as part of the Cambridge series. As you can see, the title of my talk today is The Ape Origins of Human Technology. Today, I would like to tell you about my research on wild apes and explore the question, what can chimpanzees and bonobos tell us about how we humans became such extraordinarily technological beings? Look at me, I'm all wired up. How did we get from using simple stone tools to using gadgets like laptop and all sorts of fancy things? First, how did it all begin? The oldest known hominin tool dates back to 3.3 million years ago. Our early human ancestors used the sharp edges of such stones to break open fruits, nuts, or tubers. Over millions of years, technology evolved from these simple stone tools to somewhat more elaborate bifaces, hand axes, spear points, bows and arrows, needles to make clothing, pottery, very important for transporting and storing food, all the way to the complex technology we have today, which includes things like spaceships, which is a pretty long way from simple stone tools. Across the globe, we see this impressive diversity of human cultures with different people using different types of technologies. These different technologies have helped people spread all over the world, ranging from places like the Arctic, the desert, to the rainforest. But how about technology and tool use in the other primates? As we saw, humans are the ultimate tool-using ape. Among the non-human apes, diverse tool use is found only in wild chimpanzees. 
and to a somewhat lesser extent in orangutans. In gorillas, evidence for tool use is almost absent and restricted to just a few cases of this stick use for postural support. Similarly, tool use in bonobos, the very close relatives of chimpanzees, is almost absent in the wild and restricted to sometimes using an umbrella to cover themselves from the rain. So it's very surprising that in captivity we do, we do see tool use by bonobos as well. More recently, tool use has also been reported for two monkey species, the bearded capuchin monkeys in Brazil, cracking nuts, and long-tailed macaques, also using stones to process marine foods. So I am interested in why humans became the extraordinary technological beings. How did we become so reliant on tools and develop such diverse technologies? But why then study chimpanzees and bonobos, you might ask? First of all, chimpanzees and bonobos are our closest living relatives. They split off from the human lineage about six million years ago. Secondly, chimpanzees use lots of tools across a range of contexts, whereas bonobos surprisingly don't. So why this difference? Now, by investigating what drives to use in our closest living relatives, I hope to in turn also shed light on the evolutionary origins of human technology. So let me give you a quick outline of my talk, so you know what you're in for. In the first part of the talk, I'll focus specifically on chimpanzee tool use. Then in the second part, I'll focus on the tool use difference between chimpanzees and bonobos. So let's get started with chimpanzee tool use. From time to time, you'll see a reference appear at the bottom of the page, that's for the very keen ones amongst you who actually want to read more about this. Most of you will know Jane Goodall, and one of her most important discoveries about chimpanzees was that they make and use tools, an activity long thought to be exclusive to humans. In 1960, at Gombe National Park in Tanzania, Jane observed two chimpanzees making these little twig tools by stripping off the leaves and using them to fish termites from their mounds. Until that time, scientists believed that humans were the only species making and using tools, and it was actually considered a defining characteristic of the human species. Our species was defined as man, the toolmaker. So when Louis Leakey, who had sent Jane to Africa to study chimpanzees received this very excited uh, telegram about chimpanzees using tools. He made his now very famous response, now we must redefine tool, redefine man, or accept chimpanzees as humans. Let me introduce you to some examples of chimpanzee tool use. One example is nutcracking. Here you see a chimpanzee using a stone hammer and anvil to crack open oil palm nuts. This behavior is restricted 
to West Africa, so we only find it in this one area of the continent. Learning to crack nuts is not a simple thing. It takes many, many years for young ones to, to know how to do it by observing adult individuals perform this tool-use task. So first of all, you have to put your nuts on the stone. You have to make sure it doesn't roll away. She has problems too. And then you have to hit it hard enough, but not too hard. It's really quite complicated, and even mom is struggling. Now, another example of chimpanzee tool use is ant dipping. So this chimpanzee is using a very long stick to dip into the nest of very aggressive army ants and then swipe them into her mouth. And as you see, she's precariously balancing on a liana to avoid getting bitten all over by these angry ants swarming out of their nest. Then another type of stick tool use is algae scooping. This behavior is only found in one group of chimpanzees in West Africa, so it's a truly local tradition. You can see this adult male, this adult male using a stick to scoop the algae off the surface of the pond. And this male, his name is Jeje, he lost algae so much that, incredibly enough, he finished all the algae on the pond that day. <laughs> He's a real glutton. One more swipe. Then another type of tool use is termite fishing. In this particular case, the termites are actually underground. And you can see that this chimpanzee arrived very well prepared. She has two types of tools. First, she has a perforating tool, which she pokes into the ground to form a tunnel to the, to, um, to the, termite, uh, the termites below. And then she smells to make sure there are really termites there. Yes, success. And then she use the thinner tool to actually fish out the termites and eat them. And then here we have an example of chimpanzees using leaves as a tool. We call this leaf sponging. If you watch carefully, she's using this little bunch of leaves that she has chewed a little bit. And then she puts it in a stream and drinks the water. There she goes and sucks out the water. <laughs> Not sure what was going on there. <laughs> so what we see is that chimpanzees use a wide variety of tools, but different chimpanzee groups, called communities, differ in the types of tools they use. So some might be nutcrackers, others might be termite fishers, and some might use much, many more different types of tools than others. So similar to the human technological diversity, we see a variety of different types of technologies across chimpanzee groups in Africa. The key question is, why are chimpanzee groups so different? What drives tool use? We all know the saying, necessity is the mother of invention, coined by Plato a very long time ago. Necessity may lead a Scot to use a backpipe as a surrogate bike pump, but does this saying really hold true for the evolution of tool use? Big question mark. Conventional thinking 
has been that sophisticated tool use came about in response to the changes in climate that led to shrinking forests and expanding savannas. Stone tools may have helped ancient humans to uh, get food by cutting meat of animal carcasses when less fruit was available in the forests. However, alternatively, a new habitat may also pose new opportunities for tool use. And since we don't have a time machine and we cannot go back in time to study our ancestors, we will have a look at our closest living relatives, the chimpanzees, instead to investigate the roles of opportunity versus necessity. So I set out to investigate these two hypotheses. First, the opportunity hypothesis states that the encounter rate with which you encounter resources that require tool use, such as nuts or termites or ants, may determine the use of foraging tools. Then the second hypothesis is the necessity hypothesis, which states that foraging tool use may be a response to scarcity of preferred food, which in the case of chimpanzees is ripe fruit. But before we dive deeper into the science of this all, I would first like to take you on a journey to my field site in the Nimba Mountains in Guinea, West Africa, and introduce you to my study subjects. The Nimba Mountains are situated in the southeastern corner of the Republic of Guinea, on the border with Ivory Coast and Liberia, which is about 1,000 kilometers and a good two-day drive from the capital, Conakry, on the coast. Now that's a thousand kilometers on roads like this. But as long as you have music. Then from the nearest village, it's still a couple of hours walk with all our supplies for a 10 day period to our research camp in the heart of the forest. The study area consists of very lush primary forests in the valleys and we have beautiful high-altitude grasslands. And as you can see, the study site is very, very mountainous, with altitudes ranging up to 1,752 meters, and I have no idea what that would be in feet. And this place is a really unique study site. It's the only montane study site in West Africa, and in addition, it's a key biodiversity hotspot in West Africa, and has been classed as a World Heritage Site by UNESCO. So it's a real privilege to work here. Now, in addition to chimpanzees, down there, we have a number of other primate species in the Nimba Mountains. We have the beautifully colorful Diana monkeys, the spot-nosed guanans, the Sudi mangabees and mona monkeys, and the nocturnal bush babies. But shockingly, during my 13-plus years of research in Nimba, I've seen these monkey populations go down significantly due to increasing hunting pressure. Fortunately, the chimpanzees in Nimba are not hunted, as they are the totem species of the local people, so they are, they are not killed or eaten. But chimpanzees across Africa are under immense pressure. 
And this is the reason we have to go to such remote places in order to still find wild chimpanzees. They face major threats to their survival, including, obviously, the cutting of the forest, human disease transmission. Here you see a female chimpanzee with her daughter who died in a flu epidemic caused by human visitors. Many chimpanzees get killed as a result of the pet trade, because they look so cute. And hunting for the bushmeat trade is another major threat to chimpanzees as well as to other primates. So as a result, these apes are now critically endangered across Africa. So conservation efforts are key to chimpanzee survival. So besides our scientific research at NIMA, we also focus on conservation work. We provide environmental education in all the local schools. We teach children about chimpanzees. We help spread awareness regarding law enforcement. It's illegal to kill or capture chimpanzees. We run a reforestation project, which aims to connect two separated forest blocks by uh, replanting uh, the savanna stretch in between. And we help set up different community projects, such as fish farming, which provides protein alternatives to the bushmeat trade. But we also do research. This is what the NIMA team looked like when I started in 2003, me and my guide, Cassier. And this is what the team looked like 10 years on. I've had 12 students from all over the world working with me in NIMBA, as well as seven local field assistants and two camp cooks. It's a real team effort. The base camp includes a number of sleeping huts. We have a lovely little kitchen, no electricity or running water, and we have the best possible shower ever. And then sometimes the chimpanzees decide to move very, very far away from base camp, so then we just pack our tents and we camp wherever the chimpanzees take us. To give you a flavor of what life in the middle of the jungle looks like, here we see the sleeping huts. The river is just down there, 20 meters away. We have now four huts for researchers, one more to be built. Two huts for the guides, our sitting corner. We're very proud of the sitting corner. The kitchen. And the kitchen. So it's not too bad at all. And these are the main characters, the chimpanzees. My study group of West African chimpanzees has about 40 individuals, and they are semi-habituated. Now, what this means is that a number of chimpanzees no longer flee from humans, but many others still do, and it actually it can take over a decade for wild chimpanzees to fully accept human researchers, researchers in their forest. So as you'll see at my study site, we have to largely rely on indirect evidence, which could be feeding traces they leave behind, or two-use sites, or nesting sites where they have slept. As said, this process of habituation of wild chimpanzees can take many, many years. So in the early days, I spent most time in this position or walking, and I would only get a glimpse of something black in the trees, maybe once a month, if I was lucky. But by now, we are starting to identify more and more individuals. 
but to get to the point where we can really follow the chimpanzees all day, every day, may take a few more years. So after searching for the chimps for many, many days, this is the reception we often get. He's basically telling us that he is really not pleased to see us at all, and that he's about to bugger off, which means many, many more hours of walking for us to try to find them again. So to help study these very elusive chimpanzees, I use motion triggered cameras. Here we see an adult male drumming on a big buttress tree to communicate with other chimpanzees in the valley. And sometimes we even get up close and personal with our study subjects. This is the first time ever this adolescent male has seen a motion-triggered camera. And as you can see, they are incredibly curious. You can see him trying to figure out, what, what is this? And here he actually manages to, to see his reflection in the camera lens. <laughs> so this is a wild chimpanzee who has never seen a mirror before. But he has already figured out that if I move, the image moves. So could this really be me? And then here, as I've told you, chimpanzees are very keen tool users. So pay attention to all these leaves falling down. Something is being prepared, and it has to be perfect. No leaves can remain. Bear with me, it's worth the wait. So he's taking a safe approach, he's staying up high. And there you go. <laughs> they even make tools to investigate cameras. And as you'll see, he will then sniff the tool to make sure this is really safe, the camera doesn't bite. And only when he's satisfied, he comes down. So let's get back to tool use. In Nimba, the most common type of tool use is end dipping. So this is this behavior when they use these long sticks to harvest these very aggressive army ants. In addition, these chimpanzees also use cleavers, which are these rocks that they use to fracture these very big and fibrous fruits, called Trichulia africana, into manageably sized pieces. It's difficult to get your teeth into it. Now, the absence of nut cracking, and as well as termite fishing, is surprising, but especially the absence of nut cracking, because close by chimpanzees, only six kilometers away, are heavily reliant on nut cracking for subsistence. So the question is, well, what explains these patterns? So let's get back to our main question. What drives tool use? And let's investigate our two hypotheses. Is it opportunity or is it necessity? The opportunity hypothesis generates a few predictions that we can test. 
since nutcracking is absent in Nimba, we predict very few opportunities to encounter nut trees and nuts. And based on the absence of termite fishing, we also predict that um, the opportunities to encounter termites are low. And based on the presence of ant dipping, we predict that chimpanzees have plentiful opportunities to encounter these army ants. Then the necessity hypothesis, hypothesis leads to the prediction that low fruit availability will lead to more tool use. So we expect to find more ant dipping when there is less ripe fruit about. So how do you go about testing this? First, to test the opportunity hypothesis, I needed to know how many nuts and ants and termites could be found across the forest at different altitudes. And second, I needed to know at which altitude the chimpanzees could be found. So I systematically surveyed the study area over a year's period, and every month I assessed the availability of nuts and ants and termites and as well as chimpanzees across all these different altitudes. So what did I find? This is a very schematic picture of the Nimba Mountains with the different altitude categories. And first of all, I discovered that chimpanzees prefer to hang out at higher altitudes, above 900 meters. Second, I found out that nuts, as well as termites, were actually pretty rare and were found only at lower altitudes, mainly below 800 meters. And lastly, I discovered that these army ants are very abundant and are found mainly at higher altitudes, above 900 meters, just like the chimpanzees. So as a result, chimpanzees have many opportunities to encounter the ants. Then, to test the necessity hypothesis, I monitored the temporal availability, so every month, once again, of nuts, army ants, and termites. And in addition, I monitored the year-round availability of ripe fruits eaten by the chimpanzees. And then lastly, the key point, I assessed the consumption of army ants by the chimpanzees based on fecal analysis, which is great fun, and related this to the eating, the eating of the army ants to the availability of ripe fruit. So what do we find here? What we see here is the months of the year and the availability of ripe fruit in the black line. And then in the gray bars, we see the rainfall. So as you can see, during the wet season, when rainfall is at its highest, fruit availability the black line is very, very low. And we have this period of fruit scarcity between June and November. So how about the availability of nuts during this period of fruit scarcity? Here we have the proportion of trees carrying nuts across the months of the year, as well as, again, the black line with fruit availability. And what we see is that there are hardly any nuts available at times of fruit scarcity. This means that when ripe fruit is scarce, chimpanzees cannot fall back on nuts. But how about the insects? I found that both army ants and termites were available year-round, dry and wet season. 
But surprisingly, there was no increase in ant consumption when less ripe fruit was available. So what we see here is the availability of ripe fruit, calculated with a particular index, don't worry about that. Then here, the percentage of feces with ants as a proxy for army ant feeding. And as you can see, this line is just about horizontal. There's absolutely no correlation. So fruit scarcity did not drive the use of feeding tools in ant uh, consumption in NIMBA. All right, let's summarize part one and let's check our predictions. We found that the absence of nutcracking, as well as the absence of termite fishing, could be explained by very few opportunities for the chimpanzees to encounter these food sources. Whereas the presence of ant dipping could be attributed to plentiful opportunities to encounter these ants. Then secondly, we found no support for the necessity hypotheses. Low fruit availability did not lead to more tool use. So what we can conclude from part one of the talk is that ecological opportunity rather than necessity may be the mother of invention. So let's shift gears now. In part one, I discovered that environmental opportunities are very important in explaining tool use in chimpanzees. And in part two of the talk now, I will try to make sense of the species difference in tool use between chimpanzees and bonobos. As said, chimpanzees and bonobos are our two closest living relatives. They're equally closely related to us, sharing about 99% of the human genome. The two species split off from each other at about one million years ago. Now, if we can figure out, if we can shed light on why these two very closely related species are so different regarding their tool use, so basically, if we can understand more about this split in the evolutionary tree, we may also be able to understand more about this split in the evolutionary tree. Why did humans become the ultimate tool users? Now, let me first show you where we find chimpanzees and bonobos. While chimpanzees are found across the African continent in 22 countries, all the way from Guinea and Senegal to Tanzania. Bonobos, on the other hand, here indicated in green, are only found in the Democratic Republic of Congo, south of the Congo River. These two species differ in, in a number of ways. First, they differ in physical appearance. Chimpanzees are much more robust than the slender bonobos, Compare here, for example, an adult male chimpanzee with an adult male bonobo. And then secondly, chimpanzee youngsters have a very pink face, as you can see here, and they gradually become darker, whereas bonobo youngsters already have a dark face with somewhat very cute pink lips. And then second, in chimpanzee society, the males are dominant over the females. Whereas in bonobo society, females can actually dominate males. Thirdly, when two chimpanzee groups meet, they are very, very aggressive. There are no friendly interactions, and 
individuals of one group may actually kill members of the other group. Now, such types of lethal aggression have never been observed in bonobo, bonobos. And then lastly, chimpanzees use sex for reproduction. Makes sense. Whereas bonobos have much more diverse sexual behavior. They might, for example, use it to reduce tension in the group when you find a big fruiting tree, quickly have some sex and everybody settle down, or they use it to restore bonds. But the most striking difference, from my perspective, is the difference in their reliance on tool use. As you've heard, chimpanzees are renowned for these extensive uses of tools, such as nut cracking and termite fishing and ant dipping. You're familiar with them by now. Whereas bonobos use hardly any tools in the wild, but we do know that they can use tools in captivity. So very puzzling indeed. So the question is, what explains the tool use difference between these two species? Now, I set out to investigate this by comparing the bonobos in Northern Democratic of Congo and chimpanzees in close by Uganda. Now, these two study sites provide some new challenges. To get to the study site in Congo, we have to fly across the Congo Basin in this little missionary plane for half a day, and then we spend another day precariously balancing on a motorbike on these little sandy trails to get to our camp. In Uganda, it's more simple. We can actually travel by car, but that means that you have all sorts of roadblocks on the way. So off I went to investigate the difference in tool use between chimpanzees and bonobos. First, I wanted to compare the ecological opportunities for tool use in both chimpanzees and bonobos. So again, I measured the availability of army ants, termites, nut trees. Perhaps chimpanzees just have simply more ecological opportunities to use tools. Then secondly, I assessed the social learning opportunities for tool use in both chimpanzees and bonobos. I measured this by looking at the proximity to other individuals. If you've spent a lot of time feeding close to others, you might learn much more, as well as by measuring the number of social partners. Perhaps young chimpanzees interact with more individuals and spend more time close to others, and therefore perhaps have more opportunities to learn from others. And third, I compared how interested are young chimpanzees and bonobos in objects. And this I measured by looking at how much time they spend manipulating and playing with objects. Perhaps young chimpanzees have a predisposition to be inherently more interested in objects and tool use. Now, to find out how often young chimpanzees and young bonobos play with objects and how close they are to other individuals, I did what you call behavioral follows. So this means that I will pick one little chimp or one little bonobo as my target individuals, and then for one hour, I follow them incessantly and write down everything they do. So for such a study, you need individuals that are very well habituated to researchers. They have to allow me to follow them at a close distance and not get annoyed. 
But following a sort of close difference, distance puts them at a health risk. So the fact that I'm wearing a mask here is not to protect myself, but it's actually to protect the apes from catching viruses from me. Now let's look at some object manipulation examples. Here we see a seven-year-old female chimpanzee, and she's making a probing tool. So as you can see, there's a hole in the tree, and she wonders whether there's a nice yummy bug in there, a grub. So she uses the tool to poke and sniff, and if she figures out that there's somebody in there, she will start to proceed to dig. And here we see an example of solitary object play. So this is not particularly functional, but apparently lots of fun. This one-and-a-half-year-old bonobo male is playing with his little twig. He's carrying it around, biting off little pieces, and he can do this for a long, long time. And then you can also play with an object together. Here we have uh, a one-year-old male and a three-year-old female behind there, and they're playing with a leaf. So now he has it, and then she wants it. And then he would like it again, but then very unfortunately, the leaf falls down. And there's no other leaf like that one. But they carry on playing after, anyway. All right. So. What did we find regarding these ecological opportunities for tool use in chimpanzees compared to bonobos? So up in the corner here, I'll indicate the species we're talking about. Pink face, so must be chimpanzee. And here we see the GPS tracks in white across the study site of all my chimpanzee follows during the study period. So I always carry a GPS unit to know exactly where I've been all day. Now, when we map on the army ant encounters onto this map, in yellow, these little dots, we see that ants are found roughly across the chimpanzee study site. So lots of opportunities also for these chimpanzees to encounter these ants. And indeed, ant dipping sites, so places where they use tools to feed on the ants, were found across the study site, these little red squares. Then, we did not find any termites or nut trees at the chimpanzee study site. And then for the ecological opportunities for bonobos, black face over there. And here again, we have the bonobo follows. I looked at two different neighboring communities. So again, the GPS tracks. And when we map on the army ant encounters, we see that also at the bonobo study site, army ants are found across the bonobo ranges. So lots of opportunities to encounter these ants. And similarly, termite mounds were also found across the home ranges of the bonobos. These are these little green uh, circles. So to quickly summarize ecological opportunities, both chimpanzees and bonobos had opportunities to encounter ants, and bonobos even had opportunities to encounter termite mounds. Next, let's compare the social opportunities available to young chimpanzees and bonobos. Now, here we see chimpanzees in blue on the left and bonobos in red on the right. 
And what I'm plotting here is the number of social partners. And what we see is that young bonobos had more social partners than chimpanzees from whom to potentially learn. Moreover, when we compare the amount of time spent feeding close to other individuals, we see that bonobos in red actually spend much more time feeding close to others with learning opportunities than chimpanzees. So contrary to what we would expect, bonobos had overall more social learning opportunities than chimpanzees. And then finally, we compared object interest between these young chimpanzees and bonobos. So what we see here is the age of the individuals, and then each square or circle is a little chimp or a bonobo. And we have chimpanzees in blue and bonobos in red. And lo and behold, what we see is as predicted, higher rates of object manipulation in chimpanzees as compared to bonobos. And strikingly, this difference is already visible at a very young age. We even see this difference around one years old, that chimpanzees engage much more with objects than young bonobos. So let's summarize part two. First, the difference in the availability of ants, termites, nuts, could not explain the difference in tool use between these two different species. Second, the social opportunities in terms of proximity and social partners were higher for bonobos compared to chimpanzees, which is the opposite of what we would expect based on the tool use difference. And then thirdly, object interest in terms of object manipulation and object play was indeed higher for chimpanzees compared to bonobos. Now this difference in object interest suggests that there might be a species difference in the predisposition for tool use, and this might play a key role in explaining the tool use difference between these two closely related species. This is all grand, but what, what, what can these findings tell us about human tool use? What I discovered was a predisposition for object manipulation in the tool using chimpanzees and not in the non-tool-using bonobos. Now, what this suggests is that also in the human lineage, such a, such a predisposition for object interest might be actually very important. And those of you who have children may be able to testify to this. The next question, obviously, is what happened over evolutionary time? When did object interest become important? When was it selected for? Now, does it date back to the splits between the common ancestor with the chimps and the bonobos and us? Or did it evolve twice, once in our lineage and once in the chimpanzees? And how about further back in evolutionary time? My next research project will try to actually address these questions by also including gorillas, the big chaps up there, and the Asian great ape, the orangutans, as well as including human children in our study framework. What, what I'll plan to study is how object interest develops and how this may be different or similar between the non-human apes and young children. 
So thankfully, there are lots of interesting questions still to answer. But for today, the take-home message is that we, humans, may be born to users. Our extensive use of tools may be not just the result of our intelligence and our cultural inheritance, but in addition, there seems to be a role for a mental predisposition for tool use. Like chimpanzees, we may be born interested in technology. So perhaps we need to rephrase man, the tool user, into baby, the tool user. Now, before wrapping up, I would like to thank many people in many places. This work really is not possible without a big team behind you. Field assistant, field cooks, all their help in the field, funding bodies, and of course, the chimpanzees and the bonobos for allowing me to follow them around in the forest all day long. And then lastly, I would like to thank you very much for your attention. And I'm very happy to take questions that you might have. Okay, I'll just randomly point. Over there. Thank you very much. That was really interesting. I've learned so much. Um, probably like a lot of other people, I'm curious uh, when you emphasize chimpanzees are male-dominated, uh, bonobos are female-dominated, human beings seem to have evolved with patriarchal, so is gender relevant? This is a good question, and actually some of the work that I didn't present because I ran out of time is about sex differences. So one of the things that I've been studying in both chimpanzees and bonobos, again, of course, related to tool use because that's my field of research, is are there any differences between male and female bonobos and chimpanzees in how they interact with objects? And there actually are differences. So male chimpanzees, there are, so first of all, there are no differences for the bonobos, which kind of makes sense because they don't use tools and objects are, they, they, they anyway manipulate objects very little, they're not as interested. But when we look at the tool using chimpanzees, we see that actually males manipulate and uh, mess around with objects more than females, but the types of object manipulation are very different. So the males do lots of kind of rough and tumble play with a stick or any types of object. But the females do much more directed object manipulation, so they do much, much more explore, poke, which in a chimpanzee framework makes sense because actually female chimpanzees tend to use more tools than males. So it seems that young females are already doing more uh, tool-use-related object manipulation, and males do more rough-and-tumble types of things, which might prepare them and might be practice for chimpanzee displays because in chimpanzee society, males are dominant, they do lots of dominance displays, which often involves sticks and branches. So, indeed, we have to look at each species specifically to see how potential sex differences might make sense. And we have to look at very fine detail at what they're doing, because just looking at who manipulates more objects than males than females might reveal a pattern that you don't understand, but looking at what specifically they are doing might be much more informative. Yeah. Why, why are you so interested in apes? 
I think I was born interested in apes. <laughs> My mother actually can, can uh, tell you the story better than I can, but as a very young child, I was fascinated by any animal. But then when I found out about chimpanzees and I saw Jane Goodall on television, I decided I wanted to study chimpanzees on horseback. Then I had to drop the horseback part of the dream, but indeed I ended up studying chimpanzees. And why am I so interested in specifically the apes? I guess that they are so similar to us. It's, it's easy to get drawn into their lives. If you watch chimpanzees every day, it's like watching soap opera all day. There's always something going on, and you start to know all the relationships and uh, their friends, and they got into a fight yesterday, so his mother is still annoyed with him, and it's, it's very fascinating. It's an addiction. <laughs> yes, over there. Uh, thank you. Um, a few days ago, uh, there was a talk here by the eminent historian uh, Felipe Fernandez Armesto and his, and his latest book, A Foot in the River, makes great play of his argument that both chimpanzee societies and bonobo societies are actually cultural societies. So is this a view uh, that you share? Definitely. Yeah, I, it was not something I had enough time to talk about. But yes, these, we, another part of my research has been specifically on the cultural aspects of two use. And these behaviors are not, uh, you're not born knowing how to crack nuts or born knowing how to fish for termites. You might be born predisposed to be interested in objects, but young individuals learn the two use from their mothers and other individuals. So you get these distinct cultures. For example, my chimpanzees in Nimba don't crack nuts because it's simply not part of their culture. However, if we would have an immigrant female, because females migrate when they become sexually active, and she cracked nuts, it might spread into a new group. But again, the same as in human society, it really makes a difference who is the knowledgeable individual. If I'm some low-ranking individual and I do something fascinating, maybe nobody pays attention, but if I'm very important in the group and I start cracking nuts, all of a sudden everybody's cracking nuts. So all these different factors play a role in how quickly different cultures spread. And yeah, this is one of the things that I'm very interested in. You, get, you can get these very local differences in culture. For example, these chimpanzees that you saw uh, dipping for ants. I also studied the neighboring group that are literally in the same forest. There's nothing different about the forest. They even overlap in their ranges. So some of the trees they use are the same. And they have distinctly different tools. So the one group really likes long tools that which was the one you saw. And the other one, the other group, has much shorter tools. So why is this the case? We get these group differences even in the same environment. So seemingly they do it like that and the others do it like that. Thank you very much. There's a very large group of bonobos at Twy Cross Zoo. Have you done comparative work with those in the wild and those uh, in captivity, and particularly those that are born in captivity, as to tool use? So that is the next part of the big project we're developing, is exactly that. So we'll, we're hoping to, you, to look at um, captive bonobos, chimpanzees, gorillas, <laughs> and humans, but uh, to look at the development of this object interest both in the wild and in captivity, because also in captivity we can control the situation better. So I can actually give exactly the same objects to a chimpanzee, to a bonobo, to a gorilla, and I can look at how do they interact, how interested are they, what do they do, how do they explore. So yeah, either we would work at a zoo or at a, at a sanctuary in, in, uh, in Africa. 
Yeah. So going back to your comment about uh, social status influencing the behaviour, do you see any sort of sign of celebrity status sort of coming out of these cultures? Um, that's interesting. I mean, you do have some individuals that are just super keen to users, but I'm not sure whether they're celebrities. I'm not sure whether you get higher status out of being just a very good algae scooper. But this individual, this JJ, he is, I've known him since he was a little three-year-old. He's always been into tool use. Everybody would move on and he would still be poking sticks into holes. Just, he just had to. So he's always using lots of tools. And the interesting thing is, like, do other, I'm not sure whether others pick up tool use from him, but his family, his whole family is very tool use. So also his mom and his younger sister are a bit like that. So, yeah, it's a good question, but I, I, I haven't seen any examples of uh, famous tool users. I was only asking because it seems to be quite a major thing in human society, celebrity, uh, attention to celebrities, and I just wonder if it's mirrored in... Yeah, no, I, well, well, kind of the, 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 the similar thing, the chimpanzees is dominant. So if you're the high-ranking male, if you're number one, everybody, you know, pays deference to you, and... If I come up to the alpha male, I have to greet him because otherwise I get punched. So he is the celebrity in the group, but it's dependent on how long he keeps his status. Uh, hi there. I was hi. just wondering if there was any uh, possessions in chimp society or if they grow attached to their tools in any way. So if they find a particularly good nutcracker, they keep it for a while or do they just discard all their tools? That's, that's an excellent question, and we might have giggled at that question a couple of years ago, but we actually have found out that, indeed, with respect to nut cracking, they come back to crack nuts at the same place, because clearly, you know, that tree might have nuts again. And indeed, certain individuals have preference for certain combinations of hammers and anvils. So when they come back, when JJ comes back, he'll go for, you know, oh, I really love this granite anvil and then the quartz hammer, for example. So yeah, they have even a, a preference for a combination of two tools. But for the stick tools, not so much because they don't last. You might reuse them the next day, but chimpanzees move around so much that it's rare that they visit the same place in a short time period. I was just going to say, with anteating, um, they might only get 10 to 20 grams of ants maybe in an hour. So they're not eating it for the protein or because it's just neg neg negligible. Um, so maybe it's just more like a cultural thing of, of oh, let's go have that, that taste and that makes us include us in our group mm. rather than the necessity argument of searching for food. Yeah, in the case of army ants, actually, they do get a lot of protein out of it because these ants, they really kind of hang together. So when you dip, you get an enormous swipe of ants, and they're very high in protein, which is hard to find in, in chimpanzee habitat. And what we also see is that females eat more insects because they're much less likely to get protein from hunting meat because it's very dangerous to hunt monkeys when you have a little baby. So males hunt more and females eat more insects. This, this uh, argument does hold for ant fishing. So that's when they go up a tree and they fish ants from uh, an arboreal nest, and they really get very little out of it. So in that case, people have looked at the nutritional values, and it seems to be more about essential micronutrients rather than protein. So it's a very good point. I think our field is now moving towards 
looking at nutritional values much more to see, okay, what do you get out of this and that, and to put it all together. So it's definitely a field of more inquiry. Hi. Hi. Back here. Back where? <laughs> here. Oh, hi. <laughs> Um, you mentioned some of the threats to the chimpanzees, like deforestation, but I was wondering if you're noticing an effect of like climate change or um, those effects on the chimpanzees and bonobos like to their security. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And unfortunately, I mean, it's, it, it's probably still a too short a time period to look at 13 years, but we do see much more intense forest fires so you saw these beautiful savannas, but they actually burn every dry season. But in the last couple of years, we've seen the, the fires being much bigger and coming much more into the forest rather than just staying on the savannas. So this might be in, indeed due to more severe dry seasons than we had previously. So this is one of the reasons that we do this uh, long-term monitoring of the climate, not only because it's interesting to relate it to chimpanzee behavior, but also to get a record indeed of what's happening over the long term. Do you know do you know why the chimpanzees prefer to live above 900 meters? That's an excellent question. So I think one of the reasons is that human villages are at lower altitude. So if you're higher up, you're further away from humans. But then another thing is what in the previous lifetime I studied where chimpanzees sleep and they make nests in the trees. They make a little bed every night. And it seems that they actually prefer to be at higher altitude to sleep because it's much less humid at high altitudes. So it was really linked, which is why we did the, actually the climatic monitoring. So it was linked to it's nice and dry and warm at higher altitude. So they prefer to sleep there. They're further away from humans. And some tree species, mainly so the, the fruit that they eat, are found at the higher altitude. So then also there's more food. But it's not only food-related, because also at low altitude there might be a certain tree species fruiting. So I think it's something to do with sleeping away from humans and some preferred fruits. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I, I wondered whether you had seen... Um, you mentioned briefly the chimps communicating by banging on a tree, and I was wondering if the, you had seen other ways in which they use things other than just their own voice to communicate. Yeah, like and chimps or bonobos. Yeah, so in in, um, in the chimpanzees, for long distance, they mainly use this, these these trees to communicate and by banging on them. But some groups actually throw stones against the trees. So that's another way of creating a bit of a bang. And then at a shorter distance, what bonobos do is they drag branches. So they'll just grab a branch with leaves and then they just walk around with the branch and it makes a noise because you drag it through the leaf litter. And that often indicates to other bonobos nearby that we're about to move. Because it's a very dense forest, you might not be able to see somebody who's just a few meters away. But by making these noises, you might be able to alert the others, like, come on, we're moving to the next food patch. Yeah. Yeah, um, I read that the uh, explosion in tool use in humans coincided with the uh, great increase in the size of the human brain. I wondered if there was any difference in the species you've studied in terms of uh, brain structures. 
Yeah, so when we look at when, when humans first began using tools, so these kind of simpler tools, that's before brain size really exploded. But then indeed, when brain size became much bigger, which might also have to do with cooking, um, you see a real like explosion indeed of also in the, their use of technology. Chimpanzees and monobos don't really differ in their, in their brain size or in their neocortex size. So it doesn't seem to be a matter of bonobos just not being smart enough. Because when you do certain tasks in captivity, they can do it, they're just not very interested. But they're capable of doing it. Hi. Have you ever seen any object manipulation behavior that isn't actually functional? I've been reading, I mean, one thing Jane Goodall saw was chimps apparently doing rain dances as yeah. a celebration of that. And I recently read about chimps leaving or throwing stones at particular trees and leaving a stone there as if there was some sort of mystical thing, any sort of beginnings of religion or superstition or something, anything that might look like that. Yeah, I, I must say that I think the press took that a little bit too far. So what we saw there is indeed using of stones to throw against trees, which indeed might be very much to do about communicating with individuals nearby. And the fact that the stones accumulate is interesting, but I don't think there's any evidence to say that they're purposefully putting the stones there because it's a sacred tree. So I think we need a bit more information to, to <laughs> conclude that. Um, you say that, you say that um, bonobos tend to be, uh, they exhibit greater tool use in captivity. And I wondered if you had a view on how that might translate across to humans, because we're clearly the greatest tool user in the world. It's um, difficult to think of humans beings as being either in the wild or in captivity. Yeah. But due to our cultural and social sophistication, we clearly have a lot of social mechanisms in place which are controlling. And I'm wondering if you think that might be a factor in the development of human tool use. Yeah, I think one thing that really made human technology just skyrocket is the fact that we have language and we can teach. So the fact that I actually don't have to invent my computer helps, because otherwise I wouldn't have been used the laptop today. So I can build on the knowledge that has been acquired in previous generations. In chimpanzees, we do see the learning of certain two-use tasks, so they definitely culturally learn tasks from others, but, we, but they don't have what we call donated culture. I'm not there to explain you exactly how it works and also use written language to carry it from generation to generation. So that kind of puts a cap on how complex the technology can be if you don't have those tools, no pun intended, at hand, if you don't have language and teaching. So I do think that those are very, very important. Are there any more questions? Time's up. We might have another question. Hello. Do chimpanzees have toys? They do. Chimpanzees actually do have toys. They, not, not as nice as yours, but <laughs> what they have is what they find in the forest. And what we see is that in one group of chimpanzees in Uganda, the, especially the females, again, sex difference, they carry around logs or stones and they cradle it as if it's a baby, and then they even make a little nest for it and put 
the doll in it, and if they drop it, they carefully pick it up again. So it seems to be a type of chimpanzee toy. But yeah, not as cuddly as yours. <laughs> We're out of time. Thank you very much.